Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Today's podcast is with Dr. Judson Brewer, author of Unwinding Anxiety. Now, his book is definitely for the science lovers out there, for those of you that love your mental health support with a good serving of evidence-based science. And uh, he's an expert in habits and addiction. And it was a really interesting discussion. You can tell that he's a wealth of knowledge about this topic. He shares about why he thinks we're so anxious in the first place. We talk about how anxiety can actually be a habit. And this is a really, really interesting idea. If you haven't heard this before, it, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. We talk about how mindfulness helps with anxiety. And actually, it's not what most people think. And this actually surprised me quite a bit. And then lastly, we discuss powerful mindset shifts for anxiety. And uh, yeah, I loved all that he had to share in this conversation. I hope you love it too. If you would love more support for your journey to becoming calmer and happier and, and more confident, I've got some freebies over on my website. Head on over to karma-u.com. Enter your email address on that homepage. I've got a Karma You toolkit with a hypnotherapy session, worksheets, affirmations. And I've also got a confidence affirmations mp3 to help you to change the way that you speak to yourself change the way you think about yourself it's really powerful so you can head over to karma-u.com and grab those freebies now so let's get into the interview with dr judson brewer welcome dr judd thank you so much for joining me today how are you doing i'm good thanks for having me Can you tell us what it is that you do and a bit about how you got to where you are today? Sure. I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I'm a neuroscientist, and I specialize in treating anxiety and habits. And my lab studies all things habit-related, you know, the neuroscience of how, you know, habits form and how things like mindfulness can help uh, unwind some of these these habits. And... You know, we, we help people with addictions or, you know, struggling with eating or people who are even struggling with anxiety. It was one of the things that was totally unexpected in my, in the last couple of years where, you know, there's this convergence of me struggling, helping my patients with anxiety and 
actually discovering or rediscovering some research about how anxiety can actually be formed as a habit loop, which led to me writing a whole book about this. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, the book's called Unwinding Anxiety, and it is completely fascinating. Can you share what do you mean by habit, habit loop and how, how, is, how does that connect to, to anxiety exactly? Yes, it might seem counterintuitive, but we all share a very basic learning mechanism that's really set up to help us survive. You know, you can think of our ancient ancestors out on the savanna where they didn't have refrigerators. So they had to, they had to go find food every day and remember where that those food sources were. So our ancient brains were act, are actually designed, they're set up to lay down what's called context-dependent memory, where we basically... We go out, we forage for food, and then we, when we find a food source, we get this dopamine hit in our brain that says, remember what you found and where you found it, you know, what you ate and where you found it. So the process is pretty simple. It, it takes three key elements or three key ingredients, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward or a result from a behavioral standpoint. And this helps us survive not only by helping us remember where nutrients are, where food is, but it also helps us kind of scope out where danger is on the savanna and avoid those places in the future. So interesting. So in, in what way does that connect to anxiety? So we have a trigger, might be, you know, something scary that we experience. And then how does that um, connect to it being a habit? Yeah, it doesn't seem obvious. And often we form kind of generally bad habits around anxiety. I can give you an example. Like I had a patient who was referred to me, who I read a little bit about in my book, who was he was referred for anxiety. And I brought him into my office. We started mapping out some of his, you know, his anxiety habit loops. And basically what he was, uh, what, what he found was that anxiety was triggering him to stress eat. And that stress eating was Actually, he, he learned pretty quickly that the stress eating wasn't helping him. But for a lot of folks, you know, that dopamine hit or the brief relief or the just the distraction from the anxiety itself can feel good. So there's an interesting scientific background here, which is back in the you know, 1980s when people were heralding the, you know, the coming of Prozac. This is when the first selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor was discovered or manufactured. And people were thinking, oh, we're going to have new medications for anxiety. This is going to be great. You know, we're going to help people out. Yet they were ignoring our research literature. There was this guy, Thomas Borkovic, who was quietly studying anxiety. And what he suggested was that anxiety itself can be driven like any other habit. So we might have anxiety that drives drinking or stress eating or procrastination or whatever. But he suggested that anxiety could trigger a mental behavior such as worry. So worry, which is part of the definition of anxiety, can be this mental behavior that then either makes us feel like we're in control or distracts us from the worst feeling feeling of anxiety. So that that was actually really interesting to me. You know, here I was about 10 years ago struggling to help my patients in my clinic, trying to help them with medications. And in fact, you know, I have to treat about five patients for every one person to show a significant benefit in symptoms, just on average. There's this medical term called number needed to treat, and it's 5.15 in the medical literature. So five patients, one person benefits, you know, that's 20% hit rate. That's not very exciting. <laughs> and at the time, my 
you know, my lab was studying an app called Eat Right Now, where we were looking at mindfulness training to help people with overeating. And somebody in that program said, hey, you know, I'm finding that I am stress eating as a result of my anxiety. Can you make an app for anxiety? And I was thinking, well, I generally just give people medications. But that's when I went back and looked at the literature and found Borkovec's work. And it really just blew my mind. I was thinking, wow, I'd never thought of anxiety as a habit before. But when I started looking at it and seeing, you know, all this strong research literature and then started, you know, mapping this out in my own clinic practice to see if it was actually true with my patients, I was really blown away by how much explanatory power it had around people's, you know, people's anxiety and what was driving it. So the, the, the worrying or, you know, I, when I have had moments of anxiety or a lot of anxiety in my past, kind of wanting to control things would be my habit and you know, my brain thinks that that's kind of keeping things safe and that's helping. But actually, in trying to control things, you actually create more anxiety for yourself, more tension. So it's like a habit that just isn't, it isn't doing its, doing what it's intended to do, basically. Absolutely. You can think of it as, you know, it, we're worrying. So the worrying feels like we're doing something, even if we can't control the situation, at least we're worrying. You know, think of, you know, any parent that has a teenager that goes out partying, you know, that parent stays up worrying, worrying, worrying. And then as soon as they hear the doorknob, doorknob open, you know, at night, then they, they can fall asleep because they know their kid's safe. Well, I'm going to guess that their worrying did not keep their kids safe. <laughs> yeah. But at least they feel like they're doing something because they don't really have control over what's actually happening. Right, right. In your book, you talk about some statistics of US adults experience anxiety, 31% um, will experience anxiety at some point in their lives and 19% have an anxiety, dis- have had an anxiety disorder within the last year. And this was before COVID, before things probably got a lot worse. What's your take on like, why are we so anxious? How, how has this happened that this is almost like, you know, so, so common for people to be experiencing? Yeah. So I would say even BC, you know, before coronavirus, our, you know, our brains really do not like uncertainty. So uncertainty drives us from a survival standpoint to go get information so we can predict and plan for the future. Yet, ironically, if we don't have accurate information, our brain starts to spin out in all the worst case scenarios. You know, what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that? And so that thinking and planning part of the brain actually goes offline as we spin out into excessive worry and anxiety where we can't actually access our thinking and planning brain. So even before coronavirus, there were, you know, there's tons of uncertainty. So whether it's political or economic or environmental, you know, there are lots of things that have very uncertain futures that can, you know, really drive us to have excessive anxiety. And then on top of that, you can think of social media as this perfect medium for brewing and spreading anxiety. There's this term called social contagion, which is just the spread of affect or emotion from one person to another. When we go on social media, whether we're thinking we're going to get some news or you know stay updated on the latest things, in fact, what we're doing is we're walking into a, an emotional germ you know, fest where people are just sneezing their worry and their fear and their outrage and their whatever on us. And so we're more likely to catch that social contagion and then come off of there feeling even more anxious. 
So yeah, and I know you talk about this in the book that anxiety is actually contagious and we can, we're basically catching it every time we go on the, on the news and on social media. So it's so, so interesting. Have you had any experience with anxiety? Is this something that's affected you personally? Like how did you sort of get so interested in this topic? Yes, I don't know anyone that doesn't have anxiety of one level or another, but I can tell you I had severe anxiety in residency training when I was trained to become a psychiatrist. I would get panic attacks in the middle of the night. They would wake me up from sleep. And, you know, that happened for a little while. Fortunately, I had been practicing mindfulness training meditation in particular for about 10 years at that point. And I would have to say that was really helpful for helping me you know, see what I was having, but also not get caught up in that. It's Some people don't know that panic disorder is actually more about the fear of having future panic attacks. So it's kind of like panicking that I might panic again rather than just having panic attacks. So if we have a panic attack and it goes away and we don't worry about it, that doesn't count as panic disorder. It just counts as a panic attack. But if we are worried that we're going to be worried, you know, that's where we fall into the territories of like generalized anxiety disorder, or if we start worrying or panicking or avoiding situations that might lead to future panic attacks, that can actually lead us into the territory of panic disorder. Because I suppose it's, we, we really lose control. I've had panic attacks myself and you really feel like you, you're losing it. You're going mad. You need to go to hospital because you're having a heart attack. And it's, I guess, that fear that you could lose control at any moment, which can really put you on edge or, yeah, the, the kind of the fear of the fear, as you say. Absolutely. And I'm thinking I had a patient that I wrote a little bit about in my book who would get panic attacks on the highway. So you can imagine how freaked out someone would get that if they start to panic while they're driving. He described it as, you know, he felt like he was in a speeding bullet right? Because he felt like it was a very dangerous situation when he would have these panic attacks to the point where he would avoid driving on the highway altogether. And I think that's such a common fear, actually. I hear that a lot of people fearing driving, fearing having panic attacks. How did the mindfulness help you then? And how did you discover mindfulness? So it was 10 years before you were studying to be a psychiatrist. How did you discover it? And and what was it about that that helped you? I discovered it when I I had actually gone through a bad relationship breakup just before starting medical school. And I remember being stressed out myself and having trouble sleeping as I was just about to start medical school. So my first day of medical school, I remember sitting down, I was reading this book by John Kabat-Zinn called Full Catastrophe Living. And I decided, well, first day of medical school, new start to my life, I'm going to try meditating. And so my first day of medical school was my first day that I started, you know, listening to cassette tapes back then, uh, guided meditation. And, you know, really kind of, I I wouldn't say I was good at it, (laughs) but I was persistent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I remember falling asleep for the first six months or so, just trying to listen to these tapes and then spending probably the next 10 years really struggling with trying to meditate. I remember the first silent meditation retreat I went on. It was a seven-day retreat. And by the third or fourth day, I found myself crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the retreat manager because I was thinking, you know, I can make it through college. I can get into medical school, but I can't pay attention to my breath. What's wrong with me? (laughs) I think a lot of people listening are probably like, 
I understand. I can imagine that being silent for seven days and, and paying attention to your breath would be like torture for a lot of us, but obviously something that a lot of us really need as well. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, it was, it was the beginning of me knowing, seeing something that I didn't even know that I didn't know. You know, this, the unconscious incompetence where you don't know what you don't know. I didn't know that I didn't know how my mind worked. And the beginning of meditation helped me start to start to crack that nut around how my mind worked. And then over the years, I saw how critical it was that we all, you know, be able to learn how our minds work. Even simple things like seeing habits around anxiety can be tremendously helpful, just illuminating that piece. You know, that patient I mentioned earlier who had panic disorder, you know, who would panic on the highway. When he first came to my office, the first thing I did with him, you know, after we got to know each other a little bit was that I just pulled out a piece of paper and just mapped out his panic habit loops with him on a piece of paper. You know, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? And for him, right then and there, I could see that he he was like, how did I not know this before? How had I not seen this? You know, he had just been so anxious his whole life that it just felt like this black box that was jerking him around. Yet just seeing that he was, he could inadvertently even feed that anxiety helped him quite a bit in just beginning to understand how his mind works so he could then start to work with it. It's amazing, isn't it? How little we know about our minds and how we're not really taught anything, you know, at school. I think kids are taught more things now. They're starting to teach meditation in school, but we know we're not given a kind of user manual and we're supposed to try and figure it out. And yet almost everyone will struggle with something. You know, I think you talk about in the book, like everyone's got some kind of addiction. It's, you know, I don't know anyone who's not addicted to something, maybe their phones or food or TV. And so learning about ourselves and our mind is so, so important. And I like what you said there about mindfulness, not being good at it, but just being persistent with it. I think I think that's the key really, isn't it? We don't have to be good at meditation, but it's about making that time to do it and being consistent that that makes a difference. I think being consistent helps. And I also think, well, I'll say this from my own mistakes, <laughs> if we call them mistakes, which is that if we understand the purpose of meditation, I certainly thought I understood it, but really I didn't I didn't have a great understanding in terms of how it links up with our mental habits and our mental behavior patterns. And really just understanding that it was about helping us change our relationship to our thoughts and emotions and body sensations. You know, I might've heard that a bunch of times, but it didn't really sink in until I started seeing how that directly led even to my own research where, you know, all of this reward-based learning piece is about seeing how rewarding something is rather than trying to change the behavior itself. So for example, you know, I could try to force myself to pay attention to my breath, but I would just get exhausted and defeated. It's kind of like this willpower approach that many people take throughout life, which I certainly had taken forever (laughs) because I thought that was the only way to make it through life. Yet that's why people yo-yo diet, you know, when they try to force themselves to calorie, calorie restrict and then it doesn't work and then they gain that weight back or they try to force themselves not to worry or they try to force themselves to quit smoking or whatever. You know, it was, it's the same thing, trying to force myself to pay attention to my breath. But if I don't understand that it is about seeing how I'm caught up in my own thinking or seeing how I'm caught up in, you know, any craving or, you know, wanting more of this or wanting less of that without being able to see that, you know, 
I really was not seeing the purpose of meditation. And there too, and I say this just in case other folks have fallen into the same trap, when I could start to see how these habit loops were kind of perpetuating themselves, whether it was being addicted to thinking or you know wanting you know, to have pleasant images or avoid unpleasant things or whatever, being able to just sit quietly and watch those habit patterns of the mind play out was tremendously enlightening, you know, helping me see how my mind worked. But that really wasn't about the mechanics of just paying attention to my breath, which is what I thought it was about. Like there was going to be something magic about paying attention to my breath. No, it wasn't. That was just an anchor for the present moment. And I guess a lot of people, when they think of meditation, they think of having to clear their minds or stop their thoughts. And that's kind of what they think meditation is. And maybe they tell themselves, I could never do that. So I can't do it. Or I have too many thoughts, so I can't meditate. But actually, if you're having a lot of thoughts, that's that's actually maybe a sign that meditation could benefit you the most if we can observe observe that and, and watch that. Absolutely. And certainly when it comes to thinking and planning, having thoughts is helpful. <laughs> it's, it's just when we get caught up in them and they drive us rather than you know, us having control, that's when it starts to become problematic. And so do you recommend that people do kind of mindfulness meditation or are there other kind of techniques that you recommend people uh, to practice? Well, you know, I have to say my thinking has evolved over time. So I first learned, you know, the, the very classic, you know, breath awareness and you know, loving kindness and other types of practices that I had learned through Theravada Buddhism. And I thought this formal meditation was the way that this worked. But when I started doing research, so we started developing treatments for addictions using mindfulness training in my lab. And when I started studying them, I looked to see what actually helped people change behavior, like quit smoking. So we did a study where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking cessation. So we were thinking, wow, that's pretty good. What's actually driving this? There was a little bit of a correlation between the formal meditation practices, but there was much stronger driving force between these informal mindfulness practices that we were giving people. And so this really made me rethink my whole paradigm about what is helpful for people. And this goes back to, you know, helping people see how their minds work, you know, so we would start with that. And then we would give them short practices that they could do throughout the day so they could start to wake up to their own habit loops. And importantly, gave them practices that they could do as they were starting to get caught up in an urge to smoke or whatever. And so there... It's these, these informal practices right in the moment where people could learn to be with their urges. They could learn to be with their thoughts, their emotions, their body sensations, rather than just habitually react by smoking a cigarette, that we were seeing these strong effects. And of course, as a scientist, I wanted to see how true this was for other behaviors. So we actually created an app called Eat Right Now and studied it to see if the same mechanism applied. And we actually got a 40% quit rate. I'm sorry, a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. And that was, that was really mind-blowing to see that in just with an app that was training people first to see their eating habit loops, you know, what triggered their eating, and then use simple mindfulness practices to pay attention as they were eating, that it could really change their behavior. And in fact, more recently, we, we just finished a study, and I wrote a little bit about this in the book, where we could measure how much these mindfulness practices, just paying attention as you eat, could actually change the reward value in somebody. 
And this is important because this is how habits change. You know, it's not by brute force. It's by seeing very clearly just how rewarding a behavior is or unrewarding a behavior is in any one moment. So we might set up the habit of eating cake when we're five, but when we're 40 or 50 or whatever, you know, we're just eating, we tend to just, you know, we see cake, our brain says, oh, it's pretty, you know, that's rewarding because you associate, we associate that with birthday parties and presents and friends and all this stuff. So it's really hard to just say, stop eating the cake. But if we can really pay attention as we overeat, for example, then our brain can see just how unrewarding that is. And there's a whole bunch of math behind this that we don't need to go into. But basically, it's called this negative prediction error, where our brain is predicting that a behavior is going to be have a certain reward value. And then when we pay attention, and it's not as rewarding as we expected, there's this negative prediction error. And that's what updates our brain so that our brain says, yeah, you know, I'm not that excited to overeat anymore. So that we can actually change these behaviors, not through brute force, but simply through awareness, which is, I love that because it's, it's not about forcing anything. And then we can start to apply this to everything in life. Any behavior that we're trying to change, we just simply have to pay attention and ask ourselves, what am I getting from this? So whether it's overeating or even anxiety. So we, you know, of course, as a researcher, and sorry to go on and on, but I'm just this stuff's so cool. We've created an unwinding anxiety app and studied that. And we got a 57% reduction in these clinically validated anxiety scores in anxious physicians. We replicated that study with people with generalized anxiety disorder. We got a 67% reduction. And from that study, because we had a control group, we could calculate this number needed to treat, how many people needed to do the treatment before one person benefited. So as I mentioned, you know, with medications, that number needed to treat is 5.15. You got to treat five people before one person benefits. In this study, that number needed to treat was 1.6. So many fewer people had to play that treatment lottery before they saw a benefit. It's amazing. And when you were talking now, I was just thinking about (laughs) times when I've eaten cake and, you know, thought afterwards, you know, that wasn't really worth the sugar, you know, low that I'm going to get in a couple of hours. And actually just paying attention to that and really slowing down. It sounds like from what you're saying, really slowing down and paying attention and really noticing can help us to to learn what is actually, what actually helps us to feel better and what, and what doesn't. But it's amazing how so many of us, because we're not paying attention, we're, we're stuck in that loop and stuck in that habit that might be, you know, maybe for our whole lives, you know, stuck in those, those habits. Yeah. As an example, I had a patient who was trying to quit smoking and he'd been smoking 40 years. So we calculated the number of times he'd been stuck in that habit loop. You ready for this one? 293,000. Wow. <laughs> so he had reinforced yeah. that habit loop almost 300,000 thousand times over the course of his smoking career. Gosh, I wonder if just hearing that stat might be enough to to make someone think, hang on, maybe it's time to end my smoking career. Um, I wanted to also ask you about how we can change our mindset and the kind of the mindset that we can develop when it comes to, you know, calming anxiety. And then one thing that you quote in the book, I think it comes from Carol Dweck talking about um, how parents can teach their children to love challenges, be intrigued by mistakes, seek new strategies, enjoy effort, and keep on learning. 
And I wondered, could you expand on that? And are there any other kind of mindsets that would be helpful for people to to tune into? I'd be happy to. I think that, so this actually goes back to our evolutionary psychology. If you think of being in the cave, being a safe place for our ancient ancestors, right? They knew that they lived there and the saber-toothed tigers did not live there. When they went out onto the savanna, they had to be on high alert to look out for danger so they could learn where the danger is. In places that were unfamiliar to them, they had to map the territory out. And you can think of them moving into what Dweck calls growth mindset, where they're looking around and they're learning about their environment. So they're open to learning things. Yet it's in modern day, we don't have a ton of opportunities to really practice leaning into uncertainty because that's what it's all about. You know, it's our brain saying, this is uncertain. I don't know if this is true. Give me some information. And if we do it over and over enough, it becomes certain. And so we can see which parts of the savanna are safe and which parts aren't. Well, when we are so used to kind of running away from adversity, you know, in colleges, sometimes they have these, uh, what are they called? Safe spaces, where if a, a student is triggered by some disagreement that another student has, you know, I, I thought that was the whole purpose of college, but, you know, they, they say, oh, you can go off to this room and literally some of these places have milk and cookies that can help people kind of go in, go back into their, their cave where it's safe. So this idea is that if we aren't used to practicing distress tolerance, where we're leaning into the uncertainty, leaning into the unknown, it's just become so unfamiliar and so scary that instead of that being a growth zone, we actually move into our panic zone. And so we go out of the cave, we start panicking, and our, either our brain goes offline or we run back into the safety of the cave, like, vowing <laughs> never to leave again. So here, I think it's helpful just to become aware of our mindsets. When, you know, when we move into an uncertain space, whether it's mental or physical territory, we can remind ourselves that this is just our brains trying to gather information to help us survive. Make sure that we're safe. You know, it's not like we're walking out into a busy street, in which case, you know, it's not, that's not the place to be like, oh, there's traffic. Oh, is that car going to hit me? You know, that's about making sure that we're safe. And in times where we are physically safe, really saying, oh, what's, can I actually lean into this uncertainty? Can I be comfortable with discomfort itself? And in that case, it helps us kind of move from kind of a panic zone or retreating into the safety, you know, into our safe spaces or our safety zones and really see these growth zones as opportunities for growth. And in fact, I see, I write a little bit about this in the book. I see this as an opportunity. You know, we talk, we talk about, you know, two steps forward, one step backwards. And often when we, when we quote unquote fail at something, we sit there and we, judge ourselves, we beat ourselves up, we think we're never going to be able to do it. Well, that also is not letting us learn. It's not moving us into the growth zone. So every time, I don't know if this is the case for you, but for me, I learn more when I fall on my face than when I succeed at something. And so every time that we fall on our face, proverbially or literally, we can look up and say, instead of going, oh no, we can go, oh, well, what can I learn from this? Here's an opportunity to learn. And we literally, it feels like an expansion, like an opening to whatever's happening rather than a closing down. And in that case, I would say 
nothing moves us backwards. Everything, you know, we can bow to everything as a teacher and learn from it rather than seeing anything as a failure. I think that's such a powerful reminder. I think it's going to be really pertinent as we move out of lockdown. I think a lot of people that we've like, we've been in the cave, haven't we? And we haven't maybe had to meet people or be out in the world or challenge ourselves. I mean, obviously there have been lots of challenges, but there are certain challenges that we won't have had social or, you know, doing things physically like doing sports or something. And to actually come out of the cave, I think it's going to be a bit of a interesting or challenging time, I think, for lots of us as we get used to kind of challenging ourselves again. And I've, I really related to what you were saying because I, I've noticed my, my own tendency to want to try and make myself as safe and comfortable as possible. But the more safe and comfortable I try to make myself, the more scary kind of little, little challenges seem. So I've realized I, I have to challenge myself and I've been taking classes in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu recently where you basically strangle people. It's like wrestling. It's quite like rough and everything inside me is like, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, strangle anyone. I don't want to be strangled. <laughs> but it's so good for me afterwards I feel like I can take on the world and I feel a lot more resilient and capable because I've challenged myself so yeah I definitely yeah relate to what you were saying there a lot about embracing challenges and, and learning from failure as well yeah so is there any other I don't know any final words that you would have for people who are struggling with anxiety do you have any final bits of advice or parting parting words that you would want to to let them know that might be helpful I think the one thing I would say is, you know, we can really look at this as a as a three-step process. You know, we can start by mapping out how our minds work. You know, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? We can then, that second step is really asking ourselves, what am I getting from this? You know, is worrying keeping my family safe? Is it solving the problem? Is it really doing anything more than just making me feel busy <laughs> because I'm worrying, right? And that's passing the time. But the third step and I think this is a critical piece is what I call the finding the BBO, finding that bigger, better offer. And I give a lot of practices in the book about how to do this. The idea is, can we find ways to tap into things that are intrinsically available, things that we already have internally, not something that we have to go and fi find or buy? And in fact, there are two flavors of this, curiosity and kindness, so curiosity, you can think of as the, the quintessential ingredient for helping us move into growth mindset. You know, instead of going, oh no, oh, that's curiosity. You know, hmm, what's happening? So I think really tapping into our inner three-year-old, because our you know, kids are really good at being curious, you know, why is it? Why is this? Well, you know, they could stare at a blade of grass for an hour, you know, <laughs> and discover new things the whole time. So I think the curiosity piece is really helpful. And I would also say kindness is really helpful. So not only being kind to ourselves instead of beating ourselves up over quote unquote failures, but using that kindness to help us lean into, uh, lean into hardship. But that kindness also is something that is contagious. So if somebody is kind to us, not ignoring that or pushing that away or brushing it off, but really taking a moment to feel into that. What's it like when somebody's kind to me? What's it like when I'm kind to somebody else? What's it like when I'm kind to myself? And both of those categories, curiosity and kindness, feel much better than being anxious or worried themselves. So we can, we can use those, we can tap into those any moment that we're starting to worry, that we're starting to get anxious. And those can really help us start to unwind that anxiety. 
I love that. It's so, so good. Thank you so much for everything you shared. It's been amazing. Where can people find out more about you and what you're, what you're offering and buy your book and that sort of thing? I've got a website that's just drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com, that uh, we've got a bunch of free resources. They can learn about the apps that I was talking about that my lab's been doing research on and also get a link to the book. Of course, the book is available anywhere books are sold. So if somebody has their favorite book marketplace, they can just check it out there. It's just called Unwinding Anxiety, I think, as you mentioned earlier. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Karma You podcast with me, Chloe Brotheridge. Don't forget, you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one-on-one sessions. Please do subscribe to this podcast in the Apple Podcast app. And if you have enjoyed it or found it helpful, please leave me a review. It makes a massive difference to helping the podcast get discovered by other people. And come on over and find me on Instagram. I'm hanging out there every day. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please do share it with anyone who might need to hear this today. So I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a brilliant week ahead. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 